let your passion be single. Now, it wasn't always easy for me to love this topic because I couldn't make my passions single. I knew from growing up in in my father's house, one passion was unavoidable and centrally biblical, and that was a passion for the glory of God. My father quoted as often as any other text, Johnny, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do everything to the glory of God. So I grew up knowing that was one passion that had to be there. And then as I meditated more and more in my formative intellectual years on the scriptures, I saw that the reason it was so central is because it was the central and uniting passion of God himself. Let me give you a couple of texts that shocked me in those days. I'm reading through the Bible right now, as many of you are, and if you're on the plan that I'm on, it's uh, Ezekiel these days. And in Ezekiel 20, just a couple of days ago, here's what I read. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the midst of Egypt, says the Lord. But I acted for the sake of my name. So instead of pouring out his wrath on them, he saved them. And he states that his motive was for his namesake. I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And then verse 14 of chapter 20, same thing. For the sake of my name, I did not pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness. And then 60 times in the book of Ezekiel, that they might know that I am Yahweh, God, the one who is. So God is jealous for his glory and for his name. And then in Isaiah 48, 9 to 10, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. Talking about bringing them out of Babylon now. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So I knew that my daddy was right. That the reason my passion for the glory of God should be central is because God's passion for God is central to God. God is uppermost in God's affections. God is the most God-centered person in the universe. God is not an idolater. He puts nothing before himself. And therefore, the number one passion in our lives has to be a passion for the glory of God. Well, that was one. But here I am, a teenager knowing, perhaps not as clearly from Scripture, but knowing from my own 
So I had another passion. I wanted to be happy. I couldn't get rid of it. As much as I heard certain spokesmen in my church talk about the denial of my own desires in order to do God's desires, that paradigm never ended it. I wanted to be happy. Call it what you will. Joy, satisfaction, contentment, doesn't matter. They're all in the Bible. The Bible is indiscriminate in its pleasure language. If you have a nice little category for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap that when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction and it is lavish in all of them and none of them is chosen above the other. So I was torn at those days and I cast about, as I finished Wheaton College and went out to Fuller Seminary and was looking desperately for some unifying thing. Let your passion be single is my topic tonight. And that's been the passion of my life for all these years. I must have a single passion. I can't have a divided heart. Unite my heart, O oh God, to fear thy name is the great goal of our lives to have a united, not a divided heart. And I couldn't deny the one from Scripture. I couldn't deny the other from experience. I also couldn't deny it from reading. I, I was looking around to see whether I was the only one in the world who felt this way. And in reading Pascal, I read, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Well. That seems to be what I think, too. And to find it in the Ponce's gave me encouragement that this other passion to be happy was universal, undeniable, just as unavoidable as hunger in the stomach. But how does it fit with this tremendously central biblical passion for the glory of of God. Well, I got help. First from C.S. Lewis, and then from Jonathan Edwards, and then the Bible broke open to me. So I want to tell you how Lewis helped me, and how Edwards helped me, and then spend some time showing you that the Bible undergirds these things profoundly. Lewis had an awful time accepting God's centrality in the Bible. He called the demands for praise in the Psalms when he was still an atheist the soundings of an old woman seeking compliments from 
herself. That's the way God sounded to him when the psalm said, praise the Lord. So if this is God's word, and it says over and over again, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So you have God up there saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, which sounded very vain to him. And then in this life-changing page in Reflections on the Psalms, I read this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed cannot help doing with everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely an expression of it, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That was almost the solution. Very close. That set my feet to dancing. That praise, giving glory to God, was described by Lewis as not something different from joy, but joy in consummation. Oh, that's so close. That's so close to having them be one. Passion. But it was Jonathan Edwards with his absolutely profound mind. Now let me read you probably the most crucial quotation. I owe a debt to Jonathan Edwards that's really quite beyond repayment. And I did my best last year by writing um, a book called God's Passion for His Glory. Half of the book is Edwards and half of it is my love of Edwards. And the second half, which is Edwards, is the book, The End for Which God Created the World, from which this quote is taken. God is glorified within himself two ways. By appearing to himself in his own perfect idea of himself or in his Son, who is the brightness of his glory. Second, by enjoying and delighting in himself by flowing forth in infinite love and delight toward himself or in his Holy Spirit. Now that's worth a monograph. That's the Trinity we just heard laid out there. So, God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestation which he makes of himself. 
God is glorified not only in His glory being seen, but by His glory being rejoiced in. When those that see it, see it for what it is, God is glorified. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory. And that it might be received both by the mind and heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. And there it was in one paragraph. Now, this has been my project for about 20 years to unpack that paragraph in sermon after sermon and book after book. I only have one thing to say. I say to people, you want to buy a Piper book? Just get one. You don't need the rest. I say the same thing in every book. And it's that paragraph. I sum it up in little words like this. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. These are not two projects. These are not two passions. These are one passion. To know Him with the mind and delight in what you know of Him in the heart is one passion. God is glorified by being delighted in if I had time, I would unpack it for you from that great text in Philippians 1, where Paul says, I want to magnify him in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you put the magnifying of Christ alongside the gain that you get in dying, you see immediately that the way you magnify him in dying is by counting him more satisfying than everything you lose when you die. God gets no glory from people who don't enjoy God. If God is not great enough in your life that He is more enjoyable than the meal we're about to have, then you blaspheme in eating this meal. If He is not more precious to you that you have taste buds that enable you to delight more in God than this fellowship, this hotel, this meal, your health, your family, you don't know God. God is not just to be known with the mind. He is to be delighted in, savored. He is to be seen and savored. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I will say, rejoice. You don't do that. You disobey God and do not bring Him glory. Oh, how we need a generation that perceives truly with the mind and 
feels duly with the heart and a due affection for God is a mighty affection. And it is so sad that these things are split with charismatics doing one thing over here and what group shall I use over here? OP or I don't know. Who, who cherish the mind and are so suspicious of the subjectivity of the other branch of Christendom. And oh, how we need a bringing together of mind and heart, of thought and passion. Because God is only half glorified when He's known accurately and not delighted in with the heart. Now, Biblically, is this so? Is this so? Is it just a Lewis thing and an Edwards thing kind of hanging out there in the theological la-la land and you draw down some inferences from these great sentences? Or can you take a child or anybody and show them verses that make these things to be so? So let me take a few minutes with you to unpack from the Bible objections that have come to me over the years from saying these kinds of things. Because the implication, if you haven't heard it already, is Christian hedonism, which I define as simply a living for pleasure. John Piper is sold out to pleasure. Pleasure seeking is the plain old dictionary definition to hedonism. And that is my life's goal. Unashamed, unabashed, unapologetic. Well, that's not quite true because I write about it in order to make apology for it in the intellectual sense. The implication of God's being glorified by hearts that are on fire for Him and delight in Him and are satisfied in Him and take joy in Him and savor Him is that you must now, you must if you believe that, if you see that in Scripture, you must pursue joy in God. You must. If anybody tries to get you not to, and there are ethicists all over the world trying to get you not to, because they say if you pursue pleasure in doing a good deed or in worship, you contaminate it and turn it into reward-seeking. If you buy that, you can neither worship God nor love people as you ought. Or to put it positively, the very essence of worship and the essence of virtue is a delighting in God. Objections. Number one, does the Bible really teach that? Number two, what about self-denial? Number three, doesn't it put too much emphasis on emotions? Number four, uh, what about the noble concept of duty and serving God? Number five, doesn't that make you the center of the universe and not God? Now, I wonder if I could fly through those objections by giving you biblical answers to all those questions. All right, number one, is this in the Bible? Let me give you several arguments for why I say what I've just spent 15 minutes unpacking is in fact biblical. Four reasons it is biblical. Number one, the Bible commands that you pursue your delight. I already said them. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 37, 4. Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. 
Philippians 4, 6, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. These are commands, folks. These are not suggestions. These are commandments. We are commanded to be happy. Second, we are threatened with terrible things if we will not be happy. I read that Jeremy Taylor said that one time, and I thought, that's clever. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. I wonder if that's biblical. And I found it in Deuteronomy 28, 47. It goes like this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, therefore you will serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. That's serious. Joy is a serious issue. There's a world of difference between levity and joy. It is a serious issue. He threatens terrible things if you will not be happy in him. Third, the very nature of faith implies this. For example, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. One, that he is and that he rewards. You cannot please God if you don't come to him for reward. Namely, himself as the reward and the sum of all. I'm going to say that again. This text says, you cannot please God without faith. And then it defines faith as resting in, hoping in, confident in two things. He is, and he's the rewarder of those who come to him. If you don't come to him because you see him as the satisfaction of your reward-longing soul, you don't have faith and cannot please him. This is serious. This is serious. This is not icing on the cake of Christianity. Some little neat thing to think about. This is Christianity. A fourth argument. The nature of evil implies this. What is evil? What is ultimate evil according to Jeremiah 2.13? Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly dismayed, for my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's evil. So what is evil? Evil is to be presented by the living God with a a fountain of water that will carry you into eternity and satisfy your heart forever and ever and ever, never ending. And sniff at it. And turn around and take a little shovel in the dry dirt and start digging it, digging it. Put your mouth to that dry dirt and... Try to get something satisfying out of it. That's evil. Which means good is hedonism. 
Go to the fountain. Go to the fountain. The opposite of coming to the fountain is evil. The essence of coming to the fountain is drinking and drinking and drinking until it satisfies your soul and you say, ah, and begin to commend it in Indonesia and Pakistan and China and Saudi Arabia and maybe even North Korea and Cuba and Vietnam at cost to your life. So there are four reasons I say it's biblical. Now, that's my answer to the first objection is biblical. Here's my second objection. What about self-denial, John? You talk about being a hedonist and constantly pursuing your own pleasure and your own delight in God. Doesn't sound like Jesus' teachings to me about he who would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, my response to that kind of objection, as with many, many objections biblically, is usually read the rest of the passage. If anybody objects to something biblical by reading a portion of the Bible, the generally the best response is read the rest of the passage. So, the rest of the passage, anybody wants to be my disciple, must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for... Whoever would gain his life would lose it, and whoever would lose his life would gain it, find it. Now, what's the argument there? The argument is you don't want to lose your life, do you? No? Well, then lose it, and you'll gain it. It's an appeal to the desire to gain your life. C.S. Lewis was so right that the the Gospels are filled with such unblushing promises of reward at every turn that our problem is that our desires are too weak and not too strong. There is self-denial. Oh, yes, there is self-denial. Let me give you a parable, one-verse parable. It's Matthew thirteen forty-four. Remember that parable? The kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field and covered it over. And in his joy, now don't miss that phrase, from his joy goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. That's the kingdom of so what's the point of the parable? The point of the parable is deny yourself everything except the kingdom. There is self-denial, but not ultimate self-denial. Oh, no. Ultimate self-denial is atheism. Deny yourself everything that stands between you and the living water. Become a real Christian hedonist, not the kind of two-bit half-hearted hedonists that live in the world today who suck on these broken cisterns until they yield disease. I just read on the plane in Ezekiel a little farther on, and it said, they are sick with their harlotries. And I thought, oh, are they ever. The world is sick with its harlotry, meaning... It's saying to husband God, 
Just give me enough money so that I can pay my paramour down at the store. And they are sick with their harlotries. And we should deny ourselves these harlotries that we may marry the all-satisfying God of the universe. So I believe in self-denial. Deny yourself tin so that you can have the gold of God's fellowship. And when I say the gold of God's fellowship, I don't mean a posh hotel or nice clothes or big meal or health, wealth and prosperity gospel. And I'm sure I'm speaking with you and not against you here. We know that kind of gospel is not the gospel. We're called to live streamlined lives in this broken age so that the money that's in this room flows in gospel channels in tremendous measure and we keep a cap on our lifestyles so that we're not viewed by the world as just, oh, they have the same values we do, so what good is their faith? Be ready to give an answer if anybody asks the reason for the hope that is in you. Anybody asks the reason for the hope that is in you recently? And you know the reason they don't is because we look like we're hoping in the same things they do. You know, it's one thing to have an answer ready, and it's another thing to live a lifestyle that causes people to ask you for it. And that's a suffering lifestyle. You go to a hard place. You you go through a divided pancreas, and you keep a certain demeanor about yourself rooted in God, and people begin to wonder, life doesn't seem to be his ultimate value. What then is your hope in? At those points, we may be asked, I believe in self-denial in order to get the best. Third objection. Aren't you making too much of emotions? You start talking about delighting in God and being satisfied in God and rejoicing in God and being happy in God and content in God. Aren't you going to get carried away with subjectivity and subjectivism and emotions will take over your life? Isn't Christianity really a, a commitment? Isn't it a decision? Isn't it a, a will to follow King Jesus Let the emotions just come along if they will, and if they don't, no loss. No, that's not Christianity. I remember at Wheaton, I had a good course on apologetics from Millard Erickson. He had us read Joseph Fletcher's Situation Ethics in 1967. Bad book. And I wasn't real smart in those days. I was a B-plus student at Wheaton because, good night, the competition at Wheaton unbelievable. So I think I had a 3-2 average or something like that, just kind of a B average. And so I was working my tail off to understand these books he was having us read. And I remember sniffing in this book and, and reading this. One argument said, love cannot be an emotion... Because it's commanded. And you can't command the emotions. You can only command the will. That didn't smell right to me. I was, what, 19 years old, and it didn't smell right. 
And I couldn't quite figure out why that didn't smell right. I hardly knew what Calvinism and Arminianism meant yet. Now I know I was a Calvinist in the making, and that's why it didn't smell right. Hmm. You can't command the emotions. You can only command the will. Love is commanded, therefore love is not an emotion. Sounds so neat. I remember a lot of my classmates saying, Oh, yeah, right on. Oh, that's good. That's good. Now I've grown. I know what love is now. Baloney. Baloney, I say, on that argument. You know why? Emotions are commanded everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. Joy is commanded. Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4. Hope is commanded. Psalm 42. Hope in God. Fear is commanded. Fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. Peace is commanded. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Zeal is commanded. Never flag in zeal. Romans 12. Grief is commanded. Weep with those who weep. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. James 4. Desire is commanded. 1 Peter 2, 2. Earnestly desire the sincere spiritual milk of the word. Tenderheartedness is commanded. Ephesians 4, 32. Brokenness and contrition are commanded. Gratitude is commanded. Ephesians 5, 20. Give thanks for everything. Now you, you have a little six-year-old child on Christmas Day who wants a big red fire engine for Christmas and some insensitive relative gives him a pair of black socks instead. Black socks. As he opens it and the relative is sitting there, his mother can say to him, Johnny, say thank you to your grandmother. And he can say, thank you, grandmother, for the black socks. He can obey that command. That's not gratitude. Saying the words, I thank you, God, for my pancreas, or my health, or my wife, or my loss of my wife. Saying the words is not gratitude. Gratitude is an emotion. When you get the red truck, you have it, and when you don't, you don't. And yet it's commanded. God has the right to command of you what you cannot turn on and off with a spigot. That's why I'm a Calvinist. That's my definition of Calvinism. God can command of me what I ought to give, even if by virtue of my profound rebellion and corruption, I can't give it until I am born of God and transformed from within. So I'd simply reject the third objection and say, no, it does not make too much of emotion. It gets emotion back on the screen. It gets emotion back on the table. It gets it from the caboose back into the fiery furnace of the engine where it belongs. And it will not yield emotionalism if we're like Edwards who said... It's almost a quote. There's some quotes from Edwards that are so precious to me as a pastor that I have memorized because he was a pastor for 23 years. Edwards said, as a pastor, I count it my duty 
to lift and raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. Now, affections is an 18th century word for emotions. Not clammy palms. He called that animal spirits. (laughs) Fluttering eyelashes, beating heart, sweaty palms, wavering knees is not emotion. It's the physical fallout of emotion. Emotions can be had by God who has no body. And you will have emotions between the day you die and the second coming. And you will have no body during that period. You will love Jesus. You will hate sin. You will rejoice in heaven with no body. So no sweaty palms, but everything powerful that's real emotion. I count it my duty to lift the affections, emotions of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided. And then he gave two qualifications. Provided they are affected with nothing but the truth and affected in proportion with the value of the truth declared. So some truths are worth a little bit of emotion. Like we're going to have one amazing meal in a minute. That's worth a little emotion. That God rules over your life and loves you and gave His Son to die for you and will take you into His everlasting fellowship forever and ever is worth 10,000 times more emotion than what this meal will produce for us. And both are good. Both are good. And given to be enjoyed according to 2 Timothy 4. So, no to objection number three. Fourth objection. What becomes of the noble ideal of duty and, and service? I mean, you, you describe the Christian life as though it were just one pursuit of pleasure after the other. And it just seems that this doesn't fit certain biblical concepts like duty and service of God, slave of God. Paul constantly introduced himself as a, the slave of Jesus Christ. And now you're talking about hedonism and they just jar in my mind, Piper. I don't see how you can put that together. Well, join the jarring. I get jarred when I read the Bible too. And then I think and I think and I pray and I ask, Lord, I'm really ready to be refined. I'm ready to be contradicted. I'm ready to be changed. I'm ready to scrap the whole thing if it doesn't fit the scriptures. I want nothing to do with it. And then I find texts like this with regard to serving the Lord. God is not served by human hands. As though he needed anything. Acts 17.25 God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. I say, whoa. So we're not supposed to serve God as though he needed anything. Well, if he doesn't need anything, then what is my serving? It's a receiving. That I might meet people's needs, not his needs. In my serving... Christ remains the giver because the giver gets the glory. I base that on 1 Peter 4.11. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The giver gets the glory. If you try to serve God in a way that you are providing for Him, meeting His needs, increasing His glory in some way, then you get the glory. Oh, poor God. 
needs you. And you will meet his need. And you get the glory and he becomes the beneficiary, you the benefactor, and I call that blasphemy. Jesus said in Mark 10:45, "The Son of Man came not to be served. Don't serve the Son of Man, or you contradict the incarnation." which is, of course, a provocative statement, since it's written all over the New Testament that we are to serve the Lord. So we must make distinctions here. There is a service that blasphemes, and there is a service that leans on Him for provision and gives Him the glory as the benefactor and we the beneficiary. And it's all in 1 Peter 4.11. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies. So yes, 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 I believe in serving the Lord. Yes, I believe in that wonderful biblical concept provided you are constantly the receiver in relation to God as you serve people. Leaning on Him. Leaning, leaning, depending, drawing down help at every millisecond of your life so that He is the benefit. Backdoor with all its glory in you, the beneficiary. And what about duty? Just a quote from one of my favorite theologians. I wish he had lived longer and I wish I'd known him. He died the year before I got to Fuller Seminary, Edward J. Carnell. Carnell wrote a book which, in my mind, is one of the top books in my apologetics limited library called Christian Commitment. Somebody should get it back into print. Just a powerful book. Christian Commitment. Way out of print. Nobody reads it anymore. And here's a quote on duty. Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, You must, but not that kind of must. Now, let me interpret that before I read the next sentence. He's asking, is it my duty to kiss my wife goodnight? She hears the question, well, it is a duty, but it isn't that kind of duty. Here's the next sentence. What she means is this. Unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of moral value. Now, do you hear what that's saying? That's saying, yes, there is such a thing as duty in the world. All you veterans in this room who love the thought of duty during World War II, for example. You know there's such a thing as duty. But there is a duty that does no honor to country and no honor to wife and no honor to God. And it is a duty that has no heart in it. I did a seminar with a well-known Christian a few years ago, and I was charged with coming up with the title. And I gave it a Christian hedonist title, like, you know, serving God for the joy in it or something. And this 
person wrote back to me, I'm not real comfortable with that title. I think we ought to say that our goal is obedience, not joy. What would the answer to the essay question be? Explain why her objection has a built-in contradiction in it. We should pursue obedience, not joy. My answer goes something like this. That's like saying we should pursue fruit, not apples. Because obedience simply means doing what you're told. And God tells you, delight yourself in the Lord. You can't choose between duty and delight if duty is your delight or delight is your duty. You can't choose them. It's a false dichotomy. It's a category confusion. Category confusions cause all kinds of problems in philosophy. And one of them is you should go for obedience and not joy. When in fact, we're commanded by the God we should obey to be happy in Him all over the place in the Bible. And so I wrote that back, we kept the title, and we had a friendly debate during the seminar. Now I'm going to, that's my answer to objection number four, is what about this noble concept of duty? What about this noble concept of serving God? Last objection, Piper, for all your vaunted talk about the glory of God, When you go around saying to people they should pursue their joy with all their might in all they do without any exception, I think you are begetting self-centered people, not God-centered people. Is that true? Is, and this is my closing question, And it takes us back to my two passions that I wanted so bad to be united and single. Glory of God, desire to be happy. Are they really one? Or is the pursuit of this one going to lead to a self-centered life that denies this one? And as I have cast about over the years with human analogies to try to help me understand this and help you understand it, the one that I have found most helpful, and I'll close with this, is uh, in relation to my wife. You've been married 11 years. You just bring chickens. (laughs) I've been married 31 years now, and some of you in this room, as I look around at these gray heads, have been married 60 years, maybe, plus. And you could tell me a few things. 30 is half of it. Well, suppose this December, when it's 31 years, I come home with 31 long stem red roses somehow held behind my back and ring the doorbell, which I never do. And Noel, my wife, comes to the door and she looks at me kind of, why'd you do that? And, and I pull these out and say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. (laughs) What's wrong with that answer? It's a true answer. 
What's wrong with it? It's a profoundly defective answer. <laughs> Why? What's wrong with duty? We, we want to extol duty. Something wrong here. So let me replay the tape and give you the right answer. Ding dong. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Nothing makes me happier than to buy roses for you. And by the way, I've got a babysitter. Why don't you go change clothes? Because we're going out tonight. Because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. Not a million years would she ever say, nothing you'd rather do. Why don't you think about me sometime? <laughs> now why? Why? Why doesn't she accuse me of self-centered Christian hedonism at that moment. And you all have, your, your whole laughter, your, your whole heart right now knows the answer. You don't need me to explain it, but I will put it in a sentence. You know that when I express delight in her and wanting to spend the evening with her, I magnify her. I extol her. I lift her up. I honor her. And that's what worship is. Let your passion be single. And I'm so thankful to you, Father, that you have not created humans who have to choose between your glory and their satisfaction. You have so designed us that we in your image will only find our true and lasting satisfaction in you and so my exhortation to you as I pray is that you would have one single passion, namely a passion to be happy in God because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we want our lives to come into accord with this truth more fully. I want so much to see you more clearly and love you more dearly and follow you more nearly day by day. Jesus, you are our joy. We turn from the world over and over again unfilled to you. So come, and before we eat this evidence of your grace that we're going to have in just a moment, and let our taste buds physically send our souls a rejoicing in gratitude to you that this is a dim reflection of the final feast, come, O oh God, and show us yourself.